Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, everyone. My name is Judy Anderson. I'm an Associate Professor of Mathematics Education here at the University and Director of the STEM Teacher Enrichment Academy. I'm also going to be the host of this evening's Ideas event. But before we begin the proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. So to begin, I'd like to offer you all a very, very warm welcome to the Sydney Ideas event, Eddie Wu's Wonderful World of Mathematics. I believe we have a very broad audience here. I'd like to actually get a bit of an idea of who you are and what you do. And I'd like to invite my friend Thomas to join me on the stage. So Thomas, I'm going to ask the audience which categories they fit into, and you and I are going to try and estimate what fraction of the audience put their hands up. Okay. You up for it? Yep. Okay, let's try it. Could you please put your hand up if you're a graduate of the University of Sydney? Oh, keep them up. We've got to take a, a look. What do you think? Do you think, a, do you think about a quarter or a bit less? Maybe one third. Maybe one third. Okay. Okay. Thank you, everyone. Put your hand up if you're a school student in the audience. Oh, I think there's a few more of those. What do you think? Are we getting up to a half? Yeah, a half? Okay. How many of you school students are actually primary school students? Gosh, that's, that's a lot as well, isn't it? Do you think a third? Yeah, a third. A third. Thomas is a very agreeable student. <laughs> Could you put your hand up, please, if you're a school teacher? Oh, there's a few of those. What do you think about a quarter? Okay, thank you. Um, what about, are there any pre-service teachers in the audience? Any of my students or other students preparing to be maths teachers or other sorts of teachers? Not so many of those. What do you think, about a tenth or a bit less? Yeah. Yep, yeah. okay, a tenth will do. Okay, and could you please put your hand up if you're passionate about mathematics? Oh, wow. Wow. Maybe we should have said put your hand up if you're not passionate. Do you think it was close to a whole? Yeah. Yeah, excellent. Please give Thomas our, our hand for helping. Thank you. So I'm also a graduate at this university, a former school mathematics teacher, and certainly someone who's passionate about mathematics as well. I also had the pleasure and privilege of teaching Eddie Wu 
when he was enrolled here, this university, in my pre-service education program to become a mathematics teacher. One of the first things we discussed was why so many school students don't like mathematics. And something else we often discussed was why so many parents are comfortable saying that they weren't good at maths at school. These are important discussions if mathematics teachers are to change students' attitudes and also change parents' views about the importance of learning mathematics. Little did I know back in 2006 just how much Eddie Wu would take those messages to heart. This evening, we're going to learn more about what motivates Eddie to do the work he does and to hear about his vision for school mathematics. So let me introduce him to you. Eddie Wu has been teaching mathematics for more than 10 years and currently teaches at Cherrybrook Technology High School in Sydney. In 2012, Eddie started recording his lessons and uploading them to YouTube, thus creating WooTube. Since then, he's amassed a following of more than 270,000 subscribers and his videos have been viewed more than 14 million times. In 2018, Eddie was named Australia's Local Hero of the Year and he was shortlisted as one of the top 10 teachers in the world. He is also a proud University of Sydney graduate who completed his Bachelor of Education in 2008. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Mr. Eddie Wu. Wow. Good evening, everyone. It's a huge pleasure to be with you. Uh, lots of faces that I've never seen before. A few faces I do recognize, like some ex-students. They just stick out like a sore thumb. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming tonight, especially, especially those, um, those many of you who are students and therefore, after a whole day at school, have decided, yes, we're going to spend our evening listening to another teacher. I hope you find tonight worthwhile. Um, I also want to especially thank um, Judy and Mark for being part of tonight. You'll meet Mark a bit later on. Um, and also to the big University of Sydney. Can we just get one big round of applause for them for putting this on? Thank you. The university puts out a lot of incredible graduates, um, including Judy, as was just mentioned, um, and many, many others. So I feel very privileged to have the opportunity to be hosted by them and to speak with you tonight. Now, I get a little bit of time before we have a bit of a conversation, also throw out to the floor to have your questions. I get a little bit of time to talk about, well, I've named our session today, Reimagining Mathematics. Now, you may well think, why would we need to reimagine mathematics? Particularly for the adults in the room, I think, I think I know what maths is. I think I know it's about numbers and formulas and arithmetic. And to be fair, there are plenty of those in maths. But I've learned, well, over the last more than 10 years being a teacher, and also very recently, recently that I think we do need to reimagine this subject. Let me try and tell you the story of why. This has been a weird year for me. Um, I have spent the whole year traveling around Australia, meeting incredible people. This, of course, is um, ScoMo and I, and um, met him at the Prime Minister's Prizes for Science, an incredible event, which is why you can see we're all dressed fancy. And in all of my interactions with people, uh, whether they are 
leaders, heads of state, taxi drivers, just people on the street, I've found that people, when they find out I'm a maths teacher, they give me a wide range of responses. And that range of responses interests me because it's so intensely inconsistent. Uh, my children are five, seven, and ten, and so, you know, I don't do a very good one, ah, 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 two, but yet they still, I think, think of me as that's what I go to work to do. Uh, I have my, my colleagues in school, for example, um, the head of English, who's one of my best friends at school, and I remember one day we were setting up an exam hall, not dissimilar in size to this space here, and he said to me, oh, Eddie, we need to get enough tables and chairs in here. What's 16 times 16? And he said this kind of as a, you know, I wonder if you can work this out. And he did not count on the fact that, unfortunately, I'm such a nerd that reflexively I said 256. And he had this sort of taken aback look, like, that's dark magic. How do you work out these things? Seriously. Uh, and then, of course, it's, it's contrasted to what I feel like I do on a day-to-day -day basis, which, by the way, is a hugely important thing. If you're a person who learns mathematics and feels like they're constantly getting things wrong, if there's one thing I've learned from actually meeting what I like to call capital M mathematicians, people who do mathematics for their career and their profession, it's that actually real mathematicians spend the vast majority of their time getting things wrong. It's not that they're amazing at getting the right answer immediately, but it's what they do when they get things wrong that makes a difference. They don't give up. They persevere, even when they are surrounded by scraps of paper. Now, this is interesting. This is funny. True. But in some ways, it's not funny. Because when I meet people out in the real world, <laughs> the kinds of looks that I get aren't that dissimilar to that cat over there on the left-hand side. And this is a big deal. On Wikipedia, which of course we know is the font of all knowledge, on Wikipedia, there is no English anxiety page. There is no science anxiety page. But there is a mathematics anxiety page, and it's very well stocked, I'd like to point out. This is causing us real problems. For the last 20 plus years, at a national, a federal level, we've been saying, we have this, this STEM crisis. We're worried we're not producing enough graduates. People within society don't understand all these numbers and patterns. This is actually a really important reason why I think we do need to reimagine mathematics, why we need to think of it as something not which should be a source of fear or anxiety, but something which actually broadens and deepens our understanding of the world. So in the brief time that I have with you, I want to talk about three particular ways that we can, well, reimagine this subject. And because I'm obsessed with alliteration, I've tried my best to make these all start with one letter. I want to try and convince you that mathematics is not just about solving problems, writing, finishing exams. It's about searching for real understanding, for a fundamental insight into the nature of the universe. Math is also about a spirit of inquisitive exploration. We just ask questions. Why? Because we're human beings and we're curious and that's what we do. And lastly, far from being just something which causes anxiety, I think mathematics is a source of joyful surprises. A lot of people buy into the idea that mathematics is unemotional, it's dry, but few subjects, I think, can elicit emotion, both positive and negative, like mathematics, and I want to try and bring out some of the positives tonight. 
So let me begin at the top by talking about that search for fundamental insight. Now, a lot of you are here, and you have um, copies of the book that is out there in the foyer, and I want to share with you from the first chapter of the book, something which in some ways set for me the tone of why I wanted to write this book. It was a question that was given to me. Actually, it's been given to me a variety of times about this shape, a rainbow. Uh, I tried in vain to look for a rainbow after the incredible Sydney storm that we had not that long ago, too many clouds. But rainbows, which we've all seen at least once in our lives, are this amazingly beautiful shape. But what interests me is that they are perfectly round, perfectly round. I mean, it looks like a semicircle, right? But if you are lucky enough to go high, you will in fact find that if you're up on top of a mountaintop, for instance, this is not just a semicircle. That arc continues all the way on the left. And if you are in a helicopter or a plane when a rainbow appears, you will see, in fact, that, I mean, that looks Photoshopped, doesn't it? But it's real. The question, of course, is why? One of my favorite quotes as I was studying to become a, pre uh, studying to become a mathematics teacher, when I was a pre-service teacher, is that if you dig deep enough into anything, you will find mathematics there. When you have such a perfect geometric shape, it just begs the question, what is going on? And so, if you turn to page 16 and 17, <laughs> for me, it was a huge shock, actually, to go into the research to find this is a question we have been asking for centuries, and to realize it is this elegant piece of circle geometry, which, by the way, if you're a year 11 mathematics extension one student, you have just learned about why, if you just have a look at that diagram over there in the top left, Light does this wonderful thing when it enters a prism, like a raindrop. It does this thing called refraction. It splits off from its white light, which has all these different colors within it, out into all of its different components. If anyone's seen the cover of the uh, Pink Floyd album, this is the very famous image on the front. But because raindrops are not just like a piece of glass, like a rectangular prism or something like that, because they are round, every single raindrop does this Reflection, in addition to that refraction. And so there are millions of raindrops in the sky, all in the shape of that cone you can see over there on the right-hand side, which reflect back light in this perfect way. But of course, when we stand and look at a cone, we just see the cross-section, which is, of course, that circle that you saw before. You're looking at a cone from the top. You see, this search for fundamental insight to say, here's something which is just beautiful and made us ask questions. Mathematics, for me, is the key to understanding what's really going on underneath. Now, this is really nice when you see it, but I actually want you to experience this yourself, and so I'm going to need you to help me out a little bit. If you have on you a phone, would you please get it out? And in fact, you don't need a phone. Anything that you can write on will do. So if you're lucky enough to have a reserve sign on your seat, you can use that piece of paper. And I'm going to play a game with you. Now, if you do not have a phone because perhaps you're a young person, I'm going to ask you to lean on a parent near you. You only need one object between two of you on which you can write some numbers or letters. You'll see what we're going to do in a minute. Now, if you need to shuffle a little bit, you totally can, so you can be near someone. And we're going to play a game called the Game of 23. Now, to play this game, you need to be in a pair. So it's you and the person beside you or the person behind you. So you might need to find a pair if you didn't come along with someone. Make a friend. That's totally fine. 
And in your prayer, I need you to do me a favor. Would you please elect someone? Elect someone to be player one and someone to be player two. It really doesn't matter who's who. You're going to swap in the middle. Player one, player two. And player one, could you please put your hand up for me? I'll know you're ready when about half the hands are up. Player one, player one, player one. Okay, that's looking pretty good. Okay, thank you, player one. Hands down. Player one, you will begin with the phone piece of paper, whatever it is that you like, okay? If you have your phone there, could you please open up the Notes app? Or if you want, you can open up a text message. It really doesn't matter. All you need to do is be able to type something, okay? The Notes app is probably the best to go if you can find it. Player one, here is your task. You're gonna think of a number. It's a particular kind of number. A whole number between one and four. So I'm including one and four in this. So one, two, three, or four. Please think of the number. It's not a secret. Just type it in as the first thing on the notes app. Type that number in, lock it in, and then hand it to player two. Would you do that for me? Okay, phones are switching hands. Excellent. All right, now player two. You're going to do something very similar, but with a slight twist. I also want you to think of a number from one to four, a whole number. But don't just write that number down, type it. I actually want you to add your number to your friends. So if your friend had written down two to begin with, and you're thinking of three, then I'd like you to write down five. Does that make sense? You're adding up, you're just keeping up with the total, okay? Player two, that was your turn. You can hand the phone back to its owner. Okay. Now, this is the way the game unfolds. This is a back and forth. You're each going to take a turn. Player one, you're going to do just like player two did. Think of a number from one to four. You don't have to choose the same number. You can change. Or if you really want to psych out your friend, you can just keep on giving them the same number over and over again if you so choose. Write down what happens when you add your number to your friend. So, for example, you can see my fictitious player one and two here. If the most recent move with one was one, they're adding that on, so they've got six now. Are you with me? Is it okay? All right, now we're gonna go back and forth like this, but you don't yet know the most important rule, the rule that will help you to win. This game is called the Game of 23, right? The reason it is called the Game of 23 is the way to win is the person who writes down the number 23. The person who types in 23, they're the winner. Okay? Now, I want you to play this game. I'm actually going to give you about two minutes. I'd like you to play as many rounds of this game as you can. Swap who's player one and two. Play as many times as you can, and then we'll come back together and have a discussion about it. Good luck. Off you go. Okay, it's criminal of me to stop you so soon. I'm really sorry. But by now, I'm sensing by the volume in the room, you've probably played enough games that you've now sought fundamental insight as far as I need you to go. And I want us to bring the threads back together. I love this game because it's very easy to play. And it starts off so carefree, you're putting whatever numbers, but then sort of as you get toward the end of the game, Suddenly, these numbers, which didn't mean anything to you before, mean a whole lot. Now, one of the things I love about this, this is why I asked you to pull out your notes app rather than your calculator app is, if you did that, or in your, you know, you're texting someone, and you're going to text random numbers to someone, they're going to say, what is this about, okay? Um, 
I want you to have a look at your phone screen because there, on your note, you have a running record of every single game you played, perhaps one or two or even three if you're particularly good or particularly bad at the game, okay? Now, here's what I want you to do. I'm gonna ask you a simple question on the basis of the numbers that you have written there. Here's the question. Did at any point your friend, the person sitting next to you, not you, them, did they ever type the number 18? Did this happen to anyone? Hands up if this happened to you, yeah? Okay, all right, thank you, hands down. Okay, now I'm gonna make a prediction. My prediction is, if this happened to you, your friend typed the number 18, and they handed you the phone, you received it, and you were about to type the next number, and then you paused. <laughs> and then you said, boss, I don't wanna play this game anymore. <laughs> now, why is this? Why is this, okay? You're, you're getting at something that, unfortunately, sorry, not sorry, you've discovered that when I introduced this game to you, I was lying to you. This is not the game of 23, is it? Because, in fact, once someone types the number 18, the game is not finished, but the game is over, right? <laughs> so this is not really the game of 23 at all. It's a lie. This is really the game of 18. Okay, now engage your mind for a second. I want you to rewind the clock about three minutes and suppose I reintroduce this game to you and I'm all transparent, I'm all honest and I say, okay guys, we're gonna play a game, it's called the game of 18 and then I go through the rules just like I did before and said, all right, off you go, play. What would happen if you played by those rules and if the cogs are turning in your brain, maybe you've realized that it wouldn't be the game of 18 if I introduce this as the game of 18 because, for instance, if I say 13, no matter what you say next, right, no matter what you say next, if you said, say, for example, 2, right, um, then I would I would write down 15, and then I'd say 3. 18, game over. Sorry. Not that sorry. Uh, if you played 13, though, the game of 13, this is, this is not the game of 13 either, because I can keep on going back through here, nor is it the game of 8, this is really the game of, have you followed the pattern? Three, which you might have noticed is something that player one can actually say right from the gate. So if you were player one and you're still lost, like, congratulations, that's like actually impressive, good job. But <laughs> my point here is, what seemed random at first, I bet you were just picking numbers out somewhat by chance, right? is in fact not random at all. Mathematics is about understanding the patterns and relationships in our universe that may appear random to begin with, but there is structure, there is insight to be gained. So, a search for fundamental insight. This is what I love about mathematics, but it's not the only thing I love about it. I also love that it's a spirit of inquisitive exploration. We just love asking questions, even when it seems like they have no particular reason. Now, this shape that you can see here is an example of this. Uh, these are called the Borromean rings. This is a shape that's been discovered and rediscovered down the centuries. It's 60% of an Olympic logo. And uh, what's interesting about it is that these shapes here, these interlocking rings, they fall into a kind of mathematics called knot theory. Now, we'll get to the knots a bit later on, but let me try and explain to you why this shape is so fascinating. See how these rings are interlocking, right? You can kind of imagine that they're interlocking in your brain, but it's a little bit difficult to picture. So, 
I brought a prop with me. Now, I need a bit of help. Um, I'd love two volunteers, if possible, because I don't have enough arms. Can someone help me out? Oh, wow, I have no shortage here. Okay, I've got a little girl here in the back, and do you want to join me as well with the very attractive skull t-shirt? Um, and your names are, sorry? Remy. Remy, and I mentioned you before, and what was your name, sorry? Indy? Yeah. Nice to meet you. Remy and Indy, can we give them a hand, please? Yeah, they come over here in the middle. Now, Remy and Indy, we're going to stand here and we're going to face the audience. Okay, so come around this side with me, Indy, over here. Oh, Remy, you can move, that's fine. Okay. Now, this shape here, it's a bit tangled, so I need your help to hold it, all right? Now, I think if you take this blue one over here, and if you want to take this green one, and then this orange one will just hang out here down the bottom. Okay, I'm just going to tease them out a little bit closer. How's that? Now, just look at this and then look up. What do you think? Does that look pretty reasonably similar? You happy with that? Okay, now, hold still for a second. Now guys, have a look at this shape, okay? This is the same shape physically as you can see up there, okay? Now, Remy, Indy, you look very impressively strong to me, so this is made of paper, so don't tug too hard, but can you just gently tug? Do they seem like they all fit together? They're not like gonna fall apart just by random, right? They're actually connected, can you, you can pull a little tighter, yep, and this one too, they're all stuck, right? They're all together, okay, great, you can relax again. Now, keep holding them. Now, this is unusual, right? They're all sort of linked together in this unusual way, which is why, by the way, I actually have a friend, and his, uh, his wedding band is made of the Borromean rings, and they're all sort of linked together. It's a really beautiful shape. But there's something unusual about these if you take a pair of scissors. Now, <laughs> Indy, um, are you colorblind by any chance? No. Good, okay, so you can tell this is green. You are, are you, really? No, okay, that's fine. <laughs> green. Blue and orange. Can you pick one of these colors for us, India? Blue. Okay. Now, I'm going to take this bit, Remy, and you're going to do the honors. Now, just watch carefully, okay? Because these shapes, as we just demonstrated, are all interlocking. And hold tight, India. They're not going anywhere. Okay, good. But, um, Remy, would you please just make a cut anywhere on the blue ring that you like? You can do it anywhere, as long as you don't cut the other ones. Okay, great. Now, I'll take the scissors. I want you to take that blue shape for me. Can you grab it? Now, pull it out. Pull it out, all the way. Yeah, go for it. Don't be shy. It's okay. There you go. Whoa, there we go. Now, what happened? Uh, this is really interesting, right? Because I can grab those for you. Thank you, Remini. You can take a seat. Thanks, Remini. Thank you. I'll take that. Now, this is a bit perplexing to me because these shapes, they look like they were so ironclad, you know, joined together. Um, but we actually could have picked the green one or the orange one. If we made an incision in any of them, suddenly that wonderful unity just really collapses. Right? Now, mathematicians found this kind of strange that they have so much to do with each other and yet so little. And so they thought, we need to understand this. We want to try and build a structure around this to give us some insight. And so, inquisitively exploring just because, why not? They decided to say, well, this is complicated. This is, hurts my brain a little bit. Let's try and bring this down to something simple. This is what mathematicians do all the time. When they face a complicated problem, they try and articulate or express a simple version of said problem and try and understand that first. So the basic component of this is just a single ring. And you might think, well, not much happening here. That's true. This shape here, I said this was under the heading of not theory. This is actually called the Unknot, which seems like a pretty appropriate name, being that it's not very knotty at all. But you have to be careful with the unknot, because some shapes, like this guy here, look very different, but in fact are the same. I wonder if you can engage your imagination with me and use your imagination in your mind's eye. Can you take those two loops on the bottom left-hand corner and untwist them in your mind? Can you do it? 
Can you make the move? And if you've noticed, okay, this actually is easy to unwind and turn into the same unknot you saw before. Okay? Now, even something like this, which looks like what happens when I put my headphones in my pocket, even something like that, with time and patience, you can turn into the unknot. So you have to be very careful with these dicey little shapes. Okay? But not all knots are the unknot. For instance, this one here, which doesn't look nearly as complicated, uh, we call this the trefoil knot, by the way, tre, which comes from three, like, you know, in French, tre means three, uh, and the word foil comes from where we get the same word as foliage, which means leaves. So this is the three-leafed knot, the trefoil knot. And no matter which way you twist and turn the trefoil knot, you can't turn it into the unknot. And the reason I know is because I tried. Um, I took a skipping rope, which um, had been destroyed by one of my children. He'd ripped out one end of the skipping rope. I don't know how. Toddlers have superpowers, as all the parents in the room know. And being that it was not very much good for skipping anymore, I took the other end off, and then I reattached the ends in the form of the trefoil knot. Now, before I move on, I want you to notice that the trefoil knot crosses over itself three times. You see I've highlighted the three, right? And in fact, those three are what give the trefoil knot its structure. No matter which way you twist and turn the trefoil knot, you will still have the same three crossings every time, no matter how it looks, okay? So the unknot had no crossings. This one has three. You can keep on going up. This is the figure eight knot. It has four. Uh, these two knots here, they have five, and you can go on and on and on and on, okay? Now, you may well ask the question, what does this have to do with anything? And the answer is, for the mathematicians, it has nothing to do with anything, and we don't care because that's what explorers do. We just go and look at weird, unusual lands to see what we can find, right? Being inquisitive and curious is it the spirit, it's the heart of what makes mathematics tick. Except, not theorists did not have the last laugh, because while they might have thought these shapes have nothing to do with anything, it just so turns out that they have something to do with everything. They have something to do with every single person in this room. Now, there are several hundred of you here. I wonder, are there any identical twins? Identical twins. You are identical? Okay, fantastic. So, apart from our two individuals here in the front row, anyone else? Did I miss anyone? Oh, wow, we have two pairs of individuals. That's brilliant. Okay, so you guys are so special. Everything I'm about to say doesn't apply to you, but <laughs> you'll appreciate it nonetheless. What is it that apart from our pair of our, our twins of twins, apart from them, that makes us all unique. That they are also unique, I think they'll be very quick to point out. Um, well, it's the fact that you have within you, within every single one of your cells, a code. A code that uniquely describes you, your deoxyribonucleic acid, or DNA, as it's much more commonly known. Now, you have a lot of DNA in your body, um, most of your DNA you actually share with the person next to you. Most of it is exactly identical because it says stuff like grow hair and have two arms. So you want to make sure that that's pretty consistent, right? There's a teeny, teeny little proportion that's different from you to the person sitting next to you, and that's what makes you unique. So we need a lot of DNA to make all of the diversity that we see across the planet. So much DNA that if I took the DNA out of just one of your cells, just one, and stretched it out from end to end, it would be over two meters long. This stuff is microscopic. You can't see it with the human eye, but that's how long it would be if I laid it end to end. 
Now, the average human being has 37 trillion cells in them. So, if I took all the DNA out of all those cells and laid it end to end, don't worry, I won't do it, it would hurt, then it would stretch out to be 74 billion kilometers. Now, if you're like me, that number doesn't mean anything to you, 74 billion kilometers. When I was at school, when I was the age of a lot of you here, I had to do this fitness um, test every year called the 1.6. Did anyone else do this, the 1.6 kilometer run? Yes, thank you, someone else who went through the same torture. Um, it's one mile, right? And you do this, you run around, you see how fast you can do it. If you take longer than 10 minutes, they say, you need to go to fitness classes. And I'm not gonna tell you how I know that. Now, 1.6 kilometers, I can picture that in my mind. 74 billion kilometers, I have no idea how long that is. Probably you don't either. So let me try and illustrate it for you. The sun is far away, which is a really good thing because it is really hot. It is gigantic, fiery explosion that's constantly going off in the middle of our solar system, making everything in our world happen, okay? But we're so far away, and that's why it just gently warms us during the day. The sun is so far away. If we went from the surface of the earth all the way to the sun and back, if we completed that journey 250 times, that would be 74 billion kilometers. Now, the question that must be rising in your mind is, how can that much DNA fit inside you and I? How can all of it fit inside? And the answer is, my friends, it's in knots. <laughs> your body has been doing knot theory your entire life. These microscopic scales are in exactly the same kinds of shapes I was showing you before. In fact, there are enzymes in your body, and their sole job, their entire purpose for existing is to tie and untie knots in your body. They'd be handy on my headphones in my pocket. You see... Sometimes we just search, not because we know something is there, but because we just want to explore. That's what human beings are like, and that's the impulse that makes mathematics what it is. It's a spirit of inquisitive exploration. So, I wanted to say one last thing for you tonight. Does anyone remember what it was? One last S. It was a, a source of joyful surprises. And what's less joyful than a birthday? Now, I want to share with you a couple of surprises to close us off before I head into conversation with Mark. And one of them has to do with birthdays. Now, in a room this large, there's going to be someone who shares a birthday with someone else, right? By the way, is there anyone whose birthday is tonight? Yay, happy birthday! Thanks for coming. Yeah, hurrah. Now, we have one birthday tonight. Now, in a room this size, there's going to be other people in the room who also share birthdays with each other, even if they're not tonight, okay? Now, how large a group do you think it would have to be such that, I mean, this is a big group, right? How large do you think a group would have to be such that there's better than even odds, more than 50% chance that two people in said group will share a birthday? How big do you think that group would have to be? Like a 1,000 people? 50 people? Well, I've got news for you. So very close. It's 23. Now, 23 people seems like a bit of a surprise that in such a small group, 23, that's smaller than one of my year 11 or 12 classes, there would be an, a higher than even chance that two people share a birthday. 23. What does 23 look like? Well, <laughs> 23 people is like the cast of Guess Who. No, wait, hold on a second. That's three times eight. That's 24. Uh, that's 23 people. 
Um, because who picked Robert? I mean, he looks so sad, right? Poor Robert. Now, 23 people, how can such a small group have more than a 50% chance of having the same birthday? Let me explain. The reason why this is so weird, so counterintuitive, is because when we think of oh, having the same birthday, we think of the chance of someone having the same birthday as me, right? Like you, you think through the lens of your own personhood, right? But there are other people in the room, and there are many other people who could be paired up and have the same birthday. Let me try and show you how this works, right? If you've got two people in a room, right? There's only one chance that they could share the same birthday, because there's only one connection between those two people. But if we start to increase the number of people, there are more connections between those people, more chances for there to be shared birthdays. Three people, three connections. If I increased it to, oh, there we go, four people, six connections. Five people, there are 10 connections. These numbers, they're growing really fast, right? That was five people. When we go to six and seven, it starts to get a bit crazy. And I stopped drawing at this point because I need to go to sleep, right? Now, 15 connections, 21. I don't really want to even picture what it looks like when I've got 23 connections, right? This is going to be too difficult to draw. Can I think about this mathematically? Can I use logic and reasoning to help me? The answer wonderfully is yes. Let's think about this. How can we form this pattern of these 23 people? Let's again, like before, start with a simpler problem. Let's go with, say, this group of five. I think this is small enough that we can picture what's going on. How can we come up with the number 10 from these five people? It's not a random number, right? Well, I can think about it this way, right? Every person in the group of five has a connection to four other people. Do you see that? So five people, each one has four connections. Now, five lots of four, hold on a second. That's not the answer I'm supposed to get. Have you ever had that feeling when you go to the back of the textbook and you're like, uh-oh, that's not the answer in my book. So I got 20, why is the answer 10? Well, that seems to be half of what I've got. Why should it be half? Think about it for a second. If, for instance, we put some names on these, let's suppose that's you at the top and me on the side, right? The reason why my number that I came up with, 20, is exactly double is because, ooh, hello, updates. That's neat. I don't know if they're gonna help us work out this problem, but we'll see how we go. Um, once we get rid of said updates, um, if you think about that connection between you and me, just that... <laughs> Thank you, audience. I appreciate that. <laughs> it's, a, it's like in the movies when you're like, no, 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 don't cut the red wire. Um, that one connection between you and me, that one right there, okay? Do you notice that if we just think there's five people, they each have four connections, that one connection we've counted twice. Do you see it? I counted it in blue, and then I also counted it in green, right? So five times four is exactly double the number I'm supposed to, which is why, oh, that makes sense. If you go ahead and do that five times four, just don't forget to halve it. You'll get the number that you're supposed to get. Now, one of the wonderful things is, if I'm right, I should be able to check this pattern against the other numbers, right? Let's have a go. This group over here has six people, so each of those six people have five connections, five other people, but six times five, that's double counted. So I divide by two, 30 divided by two, 15, thumbs up. And it works for when you have seven people as well. So I have a pattern now, this is good. I can now use this without drawing a ridiculous diagram with my 23 people. Remember how it works. You've got your 23, and each one of them has how many connections? 
22 other people there, right? But if I just multiply that, I've double counted, haven't I? So what should I do? Divide by two, thank you very much. And that, don't worry, I'm not expecting you to calculate that. That happens to be 253 pairings, 253 opportunities for a shared birthday. Now, we need to unpack this, right? I'm gonna think about this problem for reasons that will become clear in a second, in reverse. We were thinking about the same birthday before, what about if they have different birthdays? What's the probability? That's quite high, isn't it? It's quite likely that you and the person sitting next to you have different birthdays. You've got your birthday, right? So long as the person sitting next to you has one of the other 364 days in the year, that's a different birthday. So they can take any of those 364, I don't mind, divide that by 365, that'll give me the probability, the chance. And this happens to be really high, right? It's very unlikely that you sit next to someone who has the same birthday. Okay, but hold on a second. Here's where all of the magic happens. That 99.7%, right? It has to happen for all 253 of those different pairings that I couldn't be bothered to draw, right? So what's the chance that not just one pair of people will have different birthdays, what's the chance that all of them will have different birthdays? Well, we take that 99.7% and we multiply it again and again and again for each one of the 253 combinations. That's what happens when you put that number up the top, we call it a power, you multiply again and again and again and again and again and again, a lot of times. When you do it, this is what you get. 49.95%. Now that's the chance they'll all have different birthdays, right? Different birthdays, so the opposite of that, having the same birthday, well, what's left over after 49.95%? Answer, just a little bit over half. You see, for me, that surprise just catches me completely off guard. But mathematical thinking allows us to encounter this. It's a source of endlessly joyful surprises. And so to finish my time with you, I want to share with you one last one. Now, um, I have this obsession with this pair of scissors in my pocket. And so I'm going to use it on this object here. Now, um, I heard how many people, um, when Judy asked, are interested in mathematics, so there's a good chance some of you have seen parts of this before, but I bet you haven't seen all of it, so stay with me. I'm gonna use this pair of scissors, and I'm going to take this loop of paper, which is just kind of like a hollow cylinder, if you can see it there. I'm going to take my pair of scissors, and I'm going to cut this shape in half. I'm gonna do it down the middle, like so. Now, if you take an object, like a fruit, an apple, a carrot, something like that, and if you cut it down the middle, it won't surprise you that when you get all the way there, you will get, by the time you finish, not one, but two different pieces. Wow, I came to the Seymour Center to see that. I'm not impressed. Okay, no big deal, that's okay. Keep that to one side. That was just a regular loop of paper, but you might notice the loop of paper that's on the screen looks a little bit different. Do you notice that? Right, it's sort of kind of twisted over on itself. Twisted over on itself because, make sure I pick up the right one. Twisted over on itself because when I created this loop, just like I did with that one, I introduced one twist before I stuck the ends together, okay? Now, it's the same deal, right? It's the same object, more or less, but something unusual happens when you try and cut it in half. I'm gonna cut it just like I did before. I have my sleeves rolled up so you know there's nothing up my sleeves. And when I go, are you okay? You guys, you guys seem pretty trustworthy in the front. I'm just not doing anything. I'm just cutting it right down the middle, yeah? Are you happy with that? No, you're not impressed. Okay, that's fine, I'm gonna go somewhere else. Um, 
Are you happy to see that I'm cutting it just, you know, very messily, admittedly, but just like I did before? But when you get to the end, something surprising happens. I need to put this piece of pair of scissors down. What, what just happened? I mean, I, I cut it in half, didn't I? Or, or apparently not. I didn't end up with two shapes like I did here. I ended up with one. Now, I want to try and put together these pieces, right? You remember I said, not these physical pieces, the pieces of my presentation. Remember I said that mathematics is about exploring, just having this sense of inquisitive exploration. That blue loop here, that's what happened when I put one twist in the loop before I stuck it all together. What do you think happens if I put another twist? Well, thankfully, you don't have to wonder. These things are not very transportable on bus, so I had to make these when I arrived. Now, this guy here looks very similar to what you see on the screen, but you can see it's sort of twisted over. That's why it's kind of got that sort of figure eight sort of loop to it, okay? Now, I'm gonna start cutting this, and I want you to make a prediction. When I cut the first shape, I got two pieces. When I got, when I cut, rather, the second shape, I got one piece. So, now that I'm cutting this one, how many pieces do you think I'll get? Some of you are thinking two pieces, one piece, zero pieces? Wait a second, what does that even mean? Well, when I say, are they gonna be one piece or two pieces, are you ready? The answer is, are there one, pieces, one piece or two pieces? The answer is, yes. Yes, there are one or two pieces. In fact, there are both. There are two things here that are clearly separate, and yet they form a unity. You see, that sound that you just gave off, that was the sound of a joyful surprise, and mathematics is full of them. So, I've made a mess on the stage, the Seymour Center is never gonna ask me back. That's my prompt to say, thank you for going on this little journey with me. I wonder if I've convinced you. I wonder, you'll be the judge, as to whether you believe now that mathematics is not just about numbers and formulas and solving problems. I wonder if you sensed and experienced that it's about searching for a way to really understand the world. It's about having a spirit of asking questions why, because, well, why not? And lastly, it's full of surprises that bring joy and delight. I hope that helps you reimagine what mathematics is. Thank you. Thank you, Eddie, and I think that surprise said it all. <laughs> I wonder how many people in the audience would have actually come here tonight and described mathematics as one of those three things. A search for fundamental insight, a spirit of inquisitive exploration, or a source of joyful surprises, or maybe there's three other words you might have used. But I'm not going to ask them. Let's just leave you thinking about that, and I'd like to now move to the second part of this evening's proceedings. Now, while Eddie may know his one, two, threes, Mark Scott certainly knows his ABC. <laughs> That's cheesy, even for me. That's <laughs> <laughs> Mark 
is the Secretary of the New South Wales Department of Education and has a distinguished record in public service, education and the media. Mark holds a Bachelor of Arts, a Diploma of Education, a Master of Arts from the University of Sydney and a Master of Public Administration from Harvard University. From 2006 to 2016, Mark was the Managing Director of the ABC and led the organisation's transformation to be a public broadcaster in the digital era. Mark was named an Officer of the Order of Australia in 2011. He has also been awarded honorary doctorates from the University of Sydney, University of New South Wales and University of Technology, Sydney. Please welcome Mark Scott. How are you? Mark, so good to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're a magician, really, aren't you? I can see that. I was kept on expecting the rabbit to be <laughs> That's why I came here with rolled up sleeves, so you know it's not happening. It's um, look, it's such a big crowd uh, here at Sydney University tonight. Um, teachers, educators, lots of students. Uh, what I um, thought we might do is I, I wanted to ask you a few questions about you and the work that you're doing now, so people can get to know you a little bit better. I'm just going to offer those uh, softballs early on to warm you up and get you in the zone because then we're going to throw to the audience for questions, <laughs> uh, particularly the students, and they're the ones who are going to have the really tough questions. I'm expecting some curveballs. Okay, Looking so this will be good. Um, look, you know, we first met a couple of years ago when I started at the Department of Education, and I remember I gave a speech where I talked about our, our project that was underway to clone Eddie Wu. Yeah, um, yeah. Because we'd heard that great things were underway in Cherrybrook uh, and the teaching you were doing there and the new uh, WooTube site that you'd, uh, you'd built. But these last two years have been absolutely amazing, haven't they? And all of a sudden you've gone from being a, a little, you know, a figure online running maths lessons to Australia's most famous teacher. How has that happened and why has that happened, do you think? Mark, I'm just like you, asking that question myself. I think back to when I was first arriving at Sydney University, and that was where I actually made the decision, rather than teaching English and history, which I still very much love, and were the subjects that I was good at at school, then took this turn. Um, it was a very Gwyneth Paltrow sliding doors moment for anyone who's... Okay, people who get that joke, fantastic, thank you. Um, it was a very dramatic shift from what I'd originally planned, and if you'd told me back then, uh, that would be more than 15 years ago, that this was going to happen, I would have laughed at you. In fact, I'm still, still somewhat laughing. But for me, I guess, it's really touched on, you know, you talked about, uh, YouTube for me has sort of taken on a life of its own, um, in that, you know, I, I never told anyone, go and watch these videos, you know, I never required my students, you know, it's like, hey, make sure you clock on and have all of the, the videos in order. People are doing this in and of themselves, and in fact, all around the world. So I guess for me, the lesson I've taken from that is people really want to understand, they want to learn, and in fact there's other barriers, and people have this stereotype of maths being a hard subject that people don't want to engage with, but I think they deep down really do. You know, one, one of the, uh, the things that people often say, and you even alluded to yourself, is that I'm not good at maths, or I'm not a maths person. Do you believe that really people aren't good at maths, and that they're not maths people, or they just haven't uh, understood it in the right way? I think it's an enduring misconception that there are people who are neurologically different to the rest of us and they just have a brain for maths. I guess one of the things that I would say is that uh, I like to picture mathematics a bit like a sense. Now, 
we all have different senses. Some people really do have phenomenal, amazing eyes, ears, taste buds that are clearly different to the rest of us. But we are all seeing, hearing, tasting, touching people. That's, that's part of our DNA. And while some people may be you know, quicker at adopting mathematics or perhaps more able to do mental calculations accurately than others, I think what mathematics is really about, what I've tried to get at tonight, trying to understand and appreciate patterns, be able to think logically and solve problems in a critical and creative way, those are things which belong to all of humanity, and I really think maths is for everyone. And, and was that a discovery you made yourself? Because, you know, you do tell the story about turning up here and on day one thinking you were going to be a, an English teacher, drama teacher maybe, and all of a sudden you're teaching mathematics. So, you know, through high school, when you were a student, did you see yourself as a mathematician? Were you a maths geek? Did you really love it? Or did you come to love it and come to understand it? When I was at school, Mark, there was a clear division between those people who, they were going to go all into mathematics and they would do, you know, they would do mathematics and physics and all the sciences and uh, it almost seemed like a sort of, you know, that pattern of study was a bit of a profile, and I did not fit into that profile at all. I did the highest level of English, four units of it, um, three units of history, two units of drama in my tiny little HSC drama class, and I didn't think of myself in those lines at all, and so it was very much a gradual journey. For me, that's actually one of the big reasons why, when I go into my classes, and I hope this is something for, for all the students here, and not just the students, but for the parents who maybe feel like, well, this is just... It's over for me. School was a long time ago. It's never too late to open the door of mathematics because I think that development, that understanding can be grown. So, so tell us about how that happened with you. I mean, you're a, you're a young adult here at Sydney University. All of a sudden, you find yourself training to be a maths teacher. Can you remember moments in your journey where you thought, actually, I get this, and as I get this, I'm, I'm really loving this, and I want to share this with others? There were many different moments just like that, Mark. I remember, for me, when it, when it clicked, that the reason there was a difference between the way I experienced maths you know, from age 19 onwards, which is when I you know, started university and, and continued to become a mathematics teacher, and before, for me, I think the way I'd summarize it is it was a difference in purpose. I wasn't doing necessarily different maths, but the reason why I engaged with it was not anymore to just pass an exam, get some marks, be able to get an ATAR, it's a UAI back then, and to say, okay, great, I've finished school. That I realized, doing maths for that purpose, let me sort of just skim on the surface of what mathematics was. When I could answer a question and get what I thought was the number that I was supposed to get, I then said, great, case closed, I can move on. I didn't realize it was really about searching for insight, about a deep understanding of things. And when I got to university, I started to learn mathematics for a whole different purpose. It was to try and convey with an authentic reason, why does this matter? And I realized I had to know mathematics in a much deeper way, and that's what changed things. One of the uh, really interesting early slides you had talked about how good mathematicians fail. Hmm. Um, whereas, you know, you talk about your school days, it's all about getting the answer right, you know, checking the back of the book, did I get it right? So, so tell us a little bit about how we learn from failing, because I think most of us would think at school it's all about getting it right and not fail. One of my favorite researchers in, in education is a man named Dylan William, and one of the quotes that grabbed me the first time I, I heard it, and I hope you all take it to heart when I say it tonight, it's, even if you heard it before, it's that if you're doing work and you make mistakes, from the teacher's point of view, I interpret that in this way, that those mistakes are a sign 
that the work you're doing is hard enough to make you learn. That your mistakes are an indicator, a signal to you. Yes, this work is challenging. That's why it's going to assist you in learning. If you could, I guess, by way of contrast, if you had a, a, a worksheet or something like that, and 50 questions on it, and you just effortlessly got every single one right, that might feel good for a moment, like, yay, I have all the right answers. But you haven't learned anything in completing that worksheet. You've made no progress. You've never challenged yourself to think, okay, I don't know how to encounter this problem. I'm going to need to seek help. I'm going to have to try a different approach. And, and so how important do you see it now, you know, for the educators in the room and for the parents of children in the room, that, that we need to actually teach them how to fail well and teach them how to find success uh, by having a journey through failure or real challenge, you know, getting it wrong, not understanding, and, and, and not being defeated by that. If there's one thing that uh, comes up so frequently when I talk to parents, and especially being a parent now, thinking about, you know, the obvious question is, how do I help my child in maths? And most parents come to me with sort of, you know, a panicked look in their eyes, and I have to learn calculus, how do I do this? I can barely manage times tables. The key is not about the amount of mathematical knowledge that you have, unless you have a huge amount and you're an engineer, and that's good for you, but for the rest of us mere mortals, in fact, a much more important thing is not the knowledge you transmit, but the mindset that you can instill. Um, one of the most heartbreaking things is that as a head of mathematics, I often have students come to me in say year 10 or 11, and they want guidance on what level of maths should I take, which course should I select? And hundreds of times every year, I'll have people come to me say, I think I should choose this easier level of maths because I don't want to struggle. I don't want to struggle, so I want to take this level of maths. Now, I understand the intent behind that. It's a very natural response. But it's the complete opposite of the conclusion I draw. Struggle is where you learn. Where there is struggle, there is hope for discovery. And so I want to encourage the parents in the room to, when you see your kids racking their brains over homework, or you yourself look at those symbols on the page and it looks all like Greek to you. Sometimes it's literally Greek, in <laughs> fact. Um, I want you to embrace that struggle. Your children will learn from you, whether it's just, oh, you know what? Don't worry, that's too hard. Go and do something else that you find more naturally easy. Leaning into that struggle and persisting in that, that's something that we get from our parents. Yeah, and, and I've also heard, a, a, you know, a great technique is to get the kids to teach you. So if you don't know it, I mean, I mean one of the, the real tests, if you really know something well, is whether you can explain it to someone else. Mm -hmm. And to get your kids to kind of engage with you and try to explain to you what they've been learning is actually very powerful learning mm -hmm. for them as well. Um, uh, I've met your daughter. She's pretty smart. She's pretty cluey. She's uh, right. She's <laughs> smart. She's cluey. Um, the new improved version, I think. Um, but, but um, you know, we've got, we've got an issue with girls and maths in this society that uh, fewer girls are doing demanding maths and demanding science courses and that whole conversation we had earlier about perhaps girls being more likely to think that they're not good mm. at maths. Um, what are your messages for the, uh, the girl mathematicians in the room, and how do we encourage more girls to really engage with mathematics in a strong way? Yeah, I think that for me, you know, as a teacher of 10 plus years, I've puzzled over this and also seeing my own daughter engaging with this, I've, I was quite amazed how early that began. It was not, you know, I, I deal with children from age 12 to 18, but at age 7 or 8, I'm delighted that there are people in this room right now who are ages 7 and 8 and some even younger. That's where those positive mindsets really begin. And so it's never too early to start. I think one of the things that is um, amazing about girls 
or maybe I should say it's disappointing about boys, is that girls are so much more quickly and deeply aware of their social surroundings. I mean, the typical boys in my classrooms, they'll put up their hand and I'll say, Johnny, that was wrong. And they'll be like, whatever. Okay, don't even, don't even care and move on. And they forget about it very quickly. But the girls, I think, are far more aware of how are people thinking of them the boys just couldn't care less. And that is a superpower. That awareness that those girls have can sometimes be a bit of a, a counterintuitive challenge to them when they think, oh, you know, regardless of whether they are actually good mathematicians or not, because when I teach mathematics extension too, the highest of level of mathematics, when I have girls in my class, they are routinely my best students. Highly methodical, very accurate, creative in the way that they approach problems and bring different perspectives into things. They're excellent. There is no physiological or neurological disadvantage that they have, but they often don't back themselves and question themselves a little more easily. That's a great strength to have when you want to think carefully about, is this answer the right answer? I want to question that rather than just going full heading without being critical about it. But if it lets us question ourselves as mathematicians, I think that's where the wheels fall off. One of the, one of the challenges I think about maths is that it seems to be a series of building blocks of learning. And, and sometimes there'll be gaps, things we didn't really understand, classes that we missed, lose a bit of confidence. And so even if you feel you, you want to be good at maths and you want to apply yourself and you're really interested in the things you've seen tonight, it just, the foundation doesn't seem to be there. So what advice for teachers and what advice for parents and even students here who just feel that that foundational knowledge uh, that they really need isn't there, and that's what lets them down. Mm. It is very true, Mark, that mathematics, one of the things that's most beautiful about it is how wonderfully coherent all the knowledge and skills fit together. It's a little bit like um, my daughter loves Harry Potter. She's read all seven of the books a lot of times over and over and over again, and one of the things she constantly tells me about it that's great is that each of the individual characters, while you meet them quite separate to each other, the threads all wonderfully intermingle, and by the time you get to book seven, it just crashes together in this wonderful, you know, symphony of different moments that harmonize together and, and show the connections. And mathematics is just like that. However, the upshot of that is, if parts of those are missing, you're looking for, it's like, it, can you imagine reading Harry Potter and um, not having one of the crucial characters, just taking out all of the pages that had that character, and then by the time you get to the end, you'd be surprised, right? Like, what's going on? I'm a bit confused. The pieces have not come together and connected. So I think that for teachers, I would say, there is a reason why in the Australian professional standards for teachers by which we measure ourselves, <laughs> the first standard, the first way we know how we develop as teachers is not no content in how to teach it. The first is no students and how they learn. Standard two is know the content and how to teach it. That has to come first, and I think unfortunately sometimes we let the tyranny of syllabus dot points that I have to get through and tick off on a register take over from what is our real work of helping students along the way. And, and just as, as an aside from that, I, I was wondering, what would have happened if you, if you hadn't changed your mind and become a maths teacher and you were an English teacher or a drama teacher? How does all this apply and your approach to teaching apply to subjects other than maths? One of the things which I think is quite funny, actually, is that uh, when I had a colleague of mine come and observe my class, because this happens routinely, we all observe each other to help us develop professionally, I had someone from a different key learning area, someone who's not mathematics, come and watch me. And at the end of the lesson, he said to me, you know, you teach mathematics like an English teacher. 
which I'd never really thought about because I don't spend much time in English classrooms, but simple lessons like the most basic rule of storytelling, which is that every, almost every great story has three acts. There is a setup, there's a conflict, and then there's resolution. That animates every single lesson that I have. So I'd like to think that the three descriptions that I gave for mathematics do share a lot in common with every key learning area, just in a different flavor. Um, now, now, you know, you're the mathematicians, but there are three things I know about this room. I know it's more likely than not that people share a birthday, but we're not going to waste time by checking that out. The other thing I find really interesting is that if you're an identical twin, you sit in the front row. Yeah, that that's really interesting. A, we've got a 100% strike rate I, on I that. I wondered that's if interesting. there was something magic about that yeah. too. Of all the rows, they sit in the front row. The third thing is they have really great questions for you. And so I want to give the audience a warning that in a minute or two we're going to go to the audience so they can ask you uh, far tougher questions uh, than you've got from, These have been uh, easy ones. You've got from me. I know tonight. you're the warm-up. It's okay. Um, you know, one of the things you're doing with the Department of Education now, you're still teaching, you're still, um, uh, WooTube is still big, but you're out there teaching our teachers and working with them, primary school teachers, high school teachers, um, um, explaining to them. Uh, how you engage students and how they should reflect and approach on their teaching. Tell us about what you're learning from getting out and about with all the great teachers in New South Wales, and what are your messages for other teachers who want to get a bit of this woo magic uh, into their maths classrooms? This is a really hard question to answer, and the reason why is because I'm just spoiled for choice. What are the things that I'm learning? I'm learning new things everywhere I go. When I, had, when I headed to Griffith earlier this year, um, it just was a, an obvious fact out in the Riverina in southeast New South Wales that we don't have casual teachers. Do you know what casual teachers are? When, um, when I'm sick, the principal will, or the, the head teacher admin or the deputy principal will hire a casual teacher to take my place. In Griffith, and in many other regional centres like it, there are no casual teachers. When there's someone away, when Murat calls in sick, we just band together. We just have to take his classes. We have to split them up and work because that's just that's just the kind of guy Murat is. Yeah, no, be, it's will be fine. He'll be okay. They'll be fine. They're good kids because Murat's taken them. I mean, that things like that. Things like um, when I went to. Uh, I've been all around the country, in fact, and when I went um, over to WA, um, seeing the transient population there that comes in for a mining boon and disappears just as quickly, and seeing the challenges of the teachers there trying to say, well, you know what, the longest any teacher has been in our school has been three, four years, if we're lucky, and to, to try and develop a culture there of positive mindsets, of, of people being able to say, no matter where you are on the mathematics learning continuum, you can progress. Things like that are so hard when there's a revolving, revolving door of teachers there. But at the same time, while those things are challenging, I've been super encouraged. Uh, I feel, I, I want to declare right at, right at the front that I feel actually really awkward, especially when someone like Judy gives me a very, very kind introduction like I had before I got on here, because that introduction makes me sound like I'm very unusual and extraordinary. But if there's one thing I've learned from going and visiting, I've spoken in front of about 35,000 people this year, it's that there are amazing teachers everywhere in classrooms around the country, and they just are doing their work quietly, uncelebrated for the sake of the children in their care, and that's been a huge encouragement to me. Yeah, they, just, they absolutely deserve a clap. Now, I think we're just going to turn up the house lights a little bit so we can see questions. We're going to have roving microphones that are rushing towards you if you have a question for Eddie Wu. I know that if, uh, if you're a Doctor Who fan, you're known as a Whovian. 
I imagine it's a room full of Libyans, <laughs> and so they're going to be uh, keen to have questions. Now, the first question I can see is right up the back. Sir, you. Yeah. Oh, hey, thanks. Um, thanks, Eddie. That was awesome. Um, I just wanted to come back to a point earlier about the sort of discrepancy between, and between genders at university in STEM fields. Uh, you touched on sort of why that is, um, but I just want to know if you were sort of the state legislator for a day, Eddie, what would you do to change that? Yeah, wow. You weren't kidding that they said harder questions, Told you, right? I tried That's to warn you. I the tried first to one, warn right? You. Okay. Um, right out the gate. And I, I'll admit that this will sound a lot like a cop-out, but I actually think after many years, it's just reality, but I will move on from it. Uh, there's no silver bullet for this. There's no, yep, we'll do this in a day, and it will fix everything. If there were something like that, there are people who are much smarter than me, who've been working at this for much longer than me, and they would have found that solution by now. So I want to make sure that we, you know, one of the things that I think is sad is that all of us want, we want, we want an easy solution. We want a solution that fits in a 15-second soundbite or on a headline. It's like, oh, great, we'll just do this, we'll just roll it out, and then off we go. Um, I will still say, though, a couple of things. The first one is, one of the big challenges when you touched on, you know, say, say gender um, disparity in all of the science, technology, engineering, and maths fields, one of the huge problems is that there's a kind of positive feedback loop. The positive feedback loop is when you've got a situation, and because the situation is a particular way, it kind of keeps itself like that. It's very stable. And what happens is if, I mean, I showed that picture of the Prime Minister's Prizes for Science earlier, which is a wonderful event, um, all these different awards, um, 10 men, one woman, and my heart just broke a little bit because I know there's amazing work being done by female scientists around the country, and we just haven't quite gotten to that point where it's as visible as the work that's been done by men. These are things that have been done over the course of 20 or 30 years. I've been really encouraged seeing that tide turn, but we need to keep at it. So I think things that you know draw out the great models and ambassadors and examples that we have, they are there, they do exist. We just need to tell their stories. But the second thing that I would say, and this is the harder one and it takes a long time, is we have to shift culture. We have to shift, what is culture? Culture is the stories that we tell ourselves about who we are and what we believe. And if you look at the way mathematics is portrayed out in the real world, out in the media, if you think about the way our leaders respond to it, um, that negativity is there and you can't be surprised. We can't be surprised when that just propagates out and is very difficult to shift. So at that cultural level is where we need to really change things, not just have a program, even a really well-funded one that just operates on the surface and introduces superficial changes. We really need to get at the heart of what people think and believe, their convictions about this subject. Yeah, and, and the, the only thing I, I just add to that is that I think when you look at participation rates of girls in um, um, HSC, maths and science, it's really easy to think, well, what's the problem in year nine? What's the problem in year 10? I think when you start digging into the gender, gender identity, how people think of themselves, this is a challenge that, that goes all the way back into primary school, all the way back into the home. And actually, it's been a problem that's been a long time in the making and won't be easily fixed. But we need a holistic solution and engagement to it that fundamentally starts in primary school, starts in the home, and brings that transformation all the way through. Now, the next uh, question is right up the back of the microphone. Hi. Um, I actually think that's a perfect segue um, because I am an astrophysicist. Um, but I... Watch out, Eddie. <laughs> yes. they, they, I... they ask really tough questions, <laughs> astrophysicists. Well, no, but I actually came back to it at... 30, 
and I didn't finish maths in high school, so I retaught myself maths. And I think my question then is that I've found through my studies that there is this real disconnect with what maths can do and the amazing things that it can teach us. I mean, in high school, I never was told that we can learn so much about our, our universe um, by things, using things like trigonometry and Pythagoras theorem and learning how to calculate m the mass of stars and amazing things like that. How do you, how would you propose that you can actually reinvigorate students' minds to make those connections um, with the physical world beyond just learn calculus and learn algebra and learn that? And I can see you're already doing it, but how would you suggest other teachers also make those connections as well? Yeah, wow, what a great question. Um, there's a few pieces to how I'd respond to that. Um, I think the first thing is, uh, it's easy, I think, you know, it's easy to point fingers. Um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of fault, I think, unfortunately, gets laid at things like, oh, it's, it's the syllabus's fault, or it's the way we assess this fault, and there's a lot of different ways to just kind of cast blame, which I think is sad. I think in New South Wales, we are very, I was gonna say fortunate, but it's not fortune. Actually, it was the work of a lot of people over a long period of time that we have a syllabus that has been incredibly well-crafted and is very coherent and lends itself to all of those applications that you were just mentioning. Now, the question then must become, why is it that roundly 90, 95% of us escape school without perhaps ever having seen those connections? And I think I can point to at least two reasons. Number one, um, the way that we assess, while I can't, you can't single it out, is a really important marker because it teaches people what we value. You teach children what you value by assessing it, by measuring it. There are other things that we value, but that's a really quick way to say, hey, we're gonna grade you on this and rank you and give you a number that says something about your value in the class. That's a way to say something is important. Now, Unfortunately, a lot of the way that we assess students doesn't have anything to do with the things that you just mentioned. Doesn't reward someone who has gone to see all of those weird connections and what have you. Generally not. It rewards someone who's fast, which is a shame, um, because while speed and fluency are a valuable part of mathematics, they are one narrow little sliver. In the New South Wales syllabus, we talk about communicating, understanding, problem-solving, reasoning, and fluency. That fluency piece is that speed and, and immediacy of knowledge that we're, we're talking about gets sort of valued, and it's one out of five. So I think there's that reason. The second other thing is that, you know, knowing all of that stuff is hard. Um, I, wrote, I wrote this book that Mark has in his lap. I wrote it because I discovered all of these things. Thank you, Mark, like a trained professional. Um, I wrote all of these things because it was, I mean, I physically have been writing the book for two years, but I've really been forming these ideas and finding these ideas for the last 10 to 15, and I just didn't know any of those things before, and I needed the time. Teachers are so incredibly time poor and, and very distracted and have all kinds of burdens and restrictions on what they can do. We need time to be able to do that and then bring that out so our students can experience it. Thanks for the question. Um, next question is over here, yeah. Um, lots of people find it difficult to reconcile English and maths. In fact, lots of people think they're polar opposites and you even have ideas such as you're either left-brained or right-brained. So as somebody who was interested in kind of more creative pursuits in high school, how do you manage to find creativity in maths and reconcile those two kind of disciplines? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, am, I am a bit of a weird 
creature of two worlds, three worlds, four, I kind of lose count. And I think it is a really sad reality that there is this false dichotomy between these areas of study. And if there are, I really hope there are some primary teachers in the room who are kind of like, how does that make sense? I teach them all, all integrated, all at once, and they are very, very skilled at doing that. The reason why in high school we go to these specializations is because now we, we want to treasure depth. We want to get to that, and we don't want to, you know, make you the expert of every single thing because of how much knowledge we're just going to have to fit in your brain. But I think where that changes is where we just, in a collegiate way, make sure we are in the minds and hearts of our colleagues learning from them. One of the best things about Cherrybrook Technology High School is not that it's just big, it's 2,000 students and so therefore about 135 teachers. One of the best factors about it is that we have this enormous combined staff room. About 80 of our teachers fit in there. And so you have science and creative performing arts and technology and languages and they're all there, all intermingling together and so often I will hear my visual arts colleagues talking about something which I never knew about but is full of mathematics. In English, the number of patterns that, I mean, I was having one of my colleagues try and explain iambic pentameter to me, which is a way, is a rhythm in which you can write your poetry. And that is completely, that rhythm is completely about the patterns of numbering the amount of syllables that you've got and creating something of great beauty. Mathematics and English, I already talked before about how many great stories and surprises in the narrative thread of mathematics that there are. For me, the most clear way to illustrate their unity is that they all live in one brain. And we understand them all as a unity, and so if we can contain that together in the way we learn, I think that's the way to bring them together. Thanks for the question. Next one, down here. Hi, um, this question for, for both of you. Um, ah, you're on the spot now, Mark. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> uh, my question, I guess, is to do with the um, STEM, so-called STEM movement that seems to have been growing for some time now in the education and outside of education world, but there also seems to be quite a confusion about what it actually means. Um, in terms of Mathematics, I think any advocate wouldn't deny that it is fundamental to lots of other disciplines and it's fundamental to one's education. So would you say that you see in Australia education scene changing to be in a less siloed fashion? Because if you think about primary to high school, um, it seems already that disciplines become a bit siloed and then further on in university. And I've admittedly been surprised to meet um, people from the STEM disciplines who say, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm not a mathematician, I'm an engineer. I'm like, well, but you use maths. <laughs> um, and similarly with, you know, teachers or adults who have anxiety wanting to separate themselves. Um, maybe you could comment on that? Sorry, it's a very broad question. <laughs> um, I'll just say, I think that that happens at a structural and a personal level. We have structures that are about mathematics or about engineering, and that necessarily happens because we have people with particular expertise. And we say, that's amazing, you're really good at that. Can I like, gather a group of you so that I can tap into your collective experience and be able to sort of take advantage of the fact there's not just one sort of individual one in little pockets, but a whole group of you who can help each other and help others. So I think structurally that does happen, but personally, I mean, I 
hopefully in the way that I've spoken tonight, you can see I don't see any division between them. And I'm very clear to say, I will say, I'm not a mathematician with a big M. That's not my job day to day. My job day to day is students, right? But I'm a little M mathematician the way every single person in this room is because I look at patterns and I appreciate them around me and want to understand them. In fact, you might think, no, that's not me, but unfortunately, you have no choice. Human beings are pattern-recognizing machines. We're so good at recognizing patterns, we even see patterns where they're not there. Every culture around the planet and throughout history has looked up at the stars, and we've created these things called constellations. Do you know what those constellations are? They are human beings finding patterns in randomness. We just can't help it. We're like, kind of like a bear? Sure, why not, right? (laughs) We find patterns everywhere. The gambler's fallacy, um, paradoxes like some of the ones I mentioned today. We are all mathematicians in that sense. So I think the way that we say, or we're not, or we are, has to be careful and nuanced. Time for just a few more questions before we're out of time. Yes, over here, ma'am. Hi there. Hi, I'm a banker and I'm mother of two girls, six and eight. And as their friends are seeing Taylor Swift, we're seeing Eddie Wu and they will appreciate that one day. (laughs) That's... that's (laughs) What I'd really love to ask is where do you see external tuition fitting in with maths education? Is it just for those who are struggling or should we be investing in that, even if your kids do appear to get it at this age? Wow. Um, firstly, um, thanks. Uh, it's, it's a huge, I'm um, sort of, I, my, my family. Shake it off, Eddie. Like, I'm, no, I'm not gonna... <laughs> Did you plant, were you, you planted her, didn't you? That is so uncool. I, um, thank you for coming. I hope you found this uh, enjoying and, and enjoyable and enriching and something that will stay with you for the rest of your life. Um, when I talk, think about external tuition, um, again, just like before, this is a really complex question. There is tuition and then there is tuition. There is something which is enormously helpful to individual students to come in at a point of need and to say, you've, had, you've got gaps in your knowledge. I can identify that and then help you with those and then you can get back on the horse and off you go. Fantastic. There are other kinds of tuition which are, frankly, um, just pumping out an industrial model of education which um, parents who are very well-intentioned and feel like they cannot do anything else, it's like, well, at least I can somewhat throw money at the problem and at least they're they're doing, they're spending more time on maths, hopefully that will help. Um, Maybe it does, maybe it's making your child hate maths because they're doing it until 9 p.m. at night after a whole day. That to me is heartbreaking. Uh, I think that Students need to be very, very careful, and parents need to be very, very careful about how they experience mathematics because, yes, the time is a worthwhile investment. It's a practical subject. But if you're just churning through, often tragically learning things which actually are just machine processes, I have students come to me and they say, I can differentiate. I'm really good at that. I'm only 15 years old, but I can dif- you don't need to know what differentiation is. But they come to me with this ability to turn a handle on this algorithm, this set of steps, just like me, I don't know how to bake, but I can follow a recipe. I have no idea what baking powder does, or why 180 degrees Celsius is important, but I can follow steps. Now, that's okay for a cake because you can still eat it at the end, but that is fatal for mathematics because you don't know why you're doing any of the things you're doing. If that's what you are, you're not a mathematician, you are a machine. And that's not what we want our children to become. So. We have to be careful with external tuition. 
Great answer. I think one final question up here. Yeah. Hi, Eddie. Um, my name's William. Um, thanks for your passion for mathematics. Um, mathematics is very powerful, and um, I'm just wondering, what do you believe is like the most motivational aspect of mathematics for you? Because a lot of people, after they've finished high school, they've got their marks, they've finished. That's the end of math for them. But really, it's a lifelong skill. I alluded before to this idea of mathematics as a sense, that it's, it's a way to perceive the world. And some people have sharper senses than others. I mean, I was, I was born with really horrendous eyesight. I have, um, I, I have to check every time. I have one eye that's short-sighted and one eye that's long-sighted. And those young people in the room are like, kind of, whoa, that's cool, you can see everything. <laughs> the older people in the room are like, no, no, it means he can see nothing. It's all, it's all a blur. Um, now, I've, I would never, you know, think, oh, I've always struggled with seeing. I guess I'm just not a seeing kind of person. Like, it's just not a, you know. But we say that about mathematics, that we struggle with maths. I'm just not a, just not a maths person. Now, for me, the best part of mathematics is that it's like slipping a pair of glasses on. And the things which were blurry or even invisible before come into crisp focus, and I can appreciate them and enjoy them and solve problems with them, whereas before I was like, it's just kind of random, and I don't know. Mathematics is powerful and beautiful and elegant because it allows us to see the world in a way we couldn't before. Ladies and gentlemen, Eddie Wu. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.